Tonight I want to talk about who gets the glory. One of the most important things in our life and in our ministry and in our service for the Lord is who gets the glory. Amen? And we all know the answer to that. We want God to get the glory for everything that we do. And uh, we want to live and act and do in such a way that God will get the glory for all that we do. Don't have any guys? All right, guess we're out of luck. So you'll have to listen and you can write some things down as they put them up on the uh, board for you. In these last couple of chapters of Galatians, there are actually five tests that are given for believers there. First of all, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, there's a test on how do I use my liberty? And then in verses 13 through 16, who runs my life? Do I run it through the flesh, or does God run it through the Spirit? Who runs my life? And then there's the test, how do I treat a Christian who has sinned? Do I restore him, or do I destroy him? And chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 6, verse 6 through 10, how do I use my wealth? Do I see my wealth as an opportunity or an obligation? Am I using it to invest for eternity? And now in the last part, verses 11 through 18, I want us to look at the fifth test tonight. Who gets the glory? Who am I serving? Who am I ministering for? Who gets the glory in our lives? Someone once said this, if you can explain what's going on, God didn't do it. It's a pretty good statement, amen? If you can explain it, it wasn't God. The Bible is very, very clear that only one person should get the glory from what we do, and that person is God, amen? He should always be the one that gets the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever we do, we're to do it for the glory of God. That kind of eliminates the sacred and the secular. You know, sometimes people d divide things and say, well, that's sacred, we should do it for God. That's secular. No, there is no sacred and secular. We do everything for the glory of God. Amen. We're supposed to drive our car for the glory of God. If we all did that, Brother Mike would probably be out of a job, wouldn't he? <laughs> We should pass our examinations, young people, for the glory of God, our tests in school. We should sweep the floor to the glory of God. We should clean our room for the glory of God. Everything we do uh, in our church, I'm thankful for what God has done. We would not have gotten this far as a church were not for a lot of people doing what they do for the glory of God. And I'm thankful for that. We work in the nursery for the glory of God. We vacuum the floor for the glory of God. We teach a Sunday school class for the glory of God. We work on a youth activity and wash cars for the glory of God, like some of the young people did yesterday. We sing in the choir for the glory of God. We sing a special for the glory of God. We play an instrument for the glory of God. You know what? When you do things for the glory of God, when somebody offends you, you don't quit. Amen? Because you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for the Lord. We assemble and trend Bibles for the glory of God. We help a widow for the glory of God. We run a bus route for the glory of God. We go out soul winning for the glory of God. We clean a bathroom for the glory of God. We change dirty diapers in the nursery for the glory of God. 
We get dressed for the day for the glory of God. You know, if we dress for the glory of God, it'll help us on knowing what to wear, won't it? King Saul lost his kingdom because he got too big and he decided that he should be honored and not God. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30, he said to Samuel, King Saul said to Samuel, Honor me before the people. And he lost the kingdom. You see, you can never be too, you can, you can be too big for God to use, but you can never be too small for God to use. God wants us to be humble in His sight, and He will use us. In John chapter 12 and verse 26, Jesus said, If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. If we're willing to serve the Lord, if we're willing to do things for the glory of God, God says, Him will my Father honor. I have to look at my service for the Lord. I have to look at my ministry. Each of us has to look at whatever we do for the, for the Lord or, or, or in ministry to serve others and ask the question, whose glory am I doing this for? Who's going to get the glory? Who's going to get the praise? Do people go away saying, what a great preacher or what a great teacher? Or do they go away saying, what a great God we serve? Amen? We must examine our lives and our ministries and our service by asking ourselves three questions. The first question is, what is the motive for my ministry? What is the motive for my service? What is the motive for what I am doing? Verse 11 of chapter 6 says, You see how, a lar- how large a letter I have written unto you, with mine own hand. Now we understand six chapters is not a long letter, so he's not talking about that. Many believe that the Apostle Paul had poor eyesight and he wrote in large letters. And so he says, you see what a large letter I've written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should, offer, they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. They may glory in your flesh. That doesn't sound like God's getting the glory, does it? You see, what is the motive for my service? Motive is important in our ministry. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, pointed that out, how important our motive was. And there's several things I want you to notice about our motive. First of all, motive is what gives value to our service and our ministry. Motive gives value to it. If we pray to be heard of men, what's the Lord say in Matthew 6? He says, we'll get our reward. We'll get the praise of men. If we give to the praise of men, the Pharisees, they used to have people blow trumpets before them as they went out on the street. That's, I think, where we get that, that statement, tooting your own horn. And they would have somebody blow the trumpets before they went. And then they would get the praise of men. But that's all they would get. That was their reward, the praise of men. The motive for Christian living and the motive for Christian service must be the glory of God. I must be doing it for His glory and for His honor. So motive gives value to my service. Secondly, motive gives quality to my ministry and service. It gives quality you'll discover that you cannot go by the immediate impact of your service, of your ministry. You've got to take time to look a little bit deeper. You don't evaluate your service or your ministry by externals, by what you see. 
remember what the Lord said when he was looking for, for a, a, place to a person to take the place of the apostle or, or of King Saul? He said, God looks upon the heart. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We've got to look deeper than just what we see on the outward appearance. What's in our heart? And you, you may say, well, I can't see your heart. But you can tell a lot of times the heart of a person. Amen? In our heart, a fellow came to the preacher one day and he asked him, he said, do you ever accept invitations to small churches? And the preacher said, sir, there are no small, small churches. Wherever God is at work, it's a big work. Amen. And you may think, well, my service is just a small thing. No, whatever you're doing for God, if you're doing it for the glory of God, it's a big thing to God. It's important to God. Did you know the average Baptist church in America has less than 100 members? You see, it's not just quantity, it's quality. And your motive gives quality to your service and your ministry. And then thirdly, motive gives permanence to our service and our ministry. It gives permanence. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17 says, But he that doeth the will of God... Listen to these last two words. Abideth forever. He that doeth the will of God. You see, when I have the right motive, when I am doing it for the will of God and for the glory of God, God says that's going to last forever. If we have the right motive, then what we are doing is going to last. There's a great deal of difference between manufacturing a program and having a ministry. The legalistic crowd is described here in verses 12 and 13. Look at what he says about them. In verse 12, And as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh. There's a lot of people, I'm afraid, in ministry and service of the Lord, it's all about the show. There are a lot of churches, it's all about the show. And he said, They constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. You see, these folks were out winning converts, but it was for their own glory. If they had been out winning people to the Lord and using the gospel of Jesus Christ to change people's lives and then give God the glory, then Paul would have been thrilled about that. He would have been excited about that. Again, there's a big difference in attaching people to Jesus Christ and in getting somebody just to join a movement. Their motive was wrong. Verse 13 says, For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. The wrong motive. It's interesting, verse number 12, if you look back there with me again, he says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh. A fair show. They were putting on an act to win people, not necessarily to Christ, but to their cause. And their cause in that day was pushing circumcision. They were trying to win people to their cause. You know, it's amazing, and I've had the privilege of being a pastor for 52 years now. Thank the Lord, 42 years here. But through the years, I was raised in a preacher's home. And I've seen people get out of sorts, and I've seen them oftentimes try to win people to their cause. We're not trying to win people to our cause. We're trying to win people to His cause. Amen? 
And if what I'm doing is for the glory of God, it doesn't matter whether they care about my cause or not. My cause, if it's right, will give glory to the Lord and bring glory to the Lord. They made fair show in the flesh. And then verse 13 tells us that they weren't even keeping their own law. He says, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law. Isn't it interesting how people can accuse you of things and they don't do them themselves? <laughs> You're not doing this and they're not doing it. You ought to be, and they're not doing it. They, he said, neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. They were preaching one thing and practicing another. How many of you believe we ought to walk what we talk? Amen? We ought to live what we preach. We ought to practice what we preach. They were in church. That was one thing, what they were in the church, but what they were outside the church was something completely different. And I've said oftentimes, what we are outside this church ought to be the same thing we are inside the church. Amen? Our kids ought not to see dad or mom change when they get home. It's okay to change clothes. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about changing what they are and how they act. Isn't it amazing how we can come to church and we can be fussing and arguing all the way to the church and we get out of the car and come in, good morning, pastor. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Yeah, everything's okay. Now, I understand sometimes the devil, he knows how to fight us on the way to church, doesn't he? Get us into arguments and situations that come along. But when we go home, we'll have the same love at home we do at church. We'll use the same language at home we do at church. We are act without anger, filled with the Spirit in love and pleasing to the Lord. To put it bluntly, these people were what we would call religious show-offs. What they did was not through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it was through the pressure of the flesh. Look at verse number 12 again. He says in that verse, he says, As many as desire to make fair show of the flesh, notice this, they constrain you to be circumcised. In other words, they were putting the pressure on. They were putting a heavy weight on them. You know what I've noticed? When the Holy Spirit is at work, He doesn't need my pressure. Amen? You know, and I'm not critical of anybody for the way they do things. Some people feel led to do things differently. We don't have real long invitations here at our church. There's a reason for that. I believe if the Holy Spirit is dealing with somebody, He doesn't need my pressure. Amen? But I've been in services when they sang, seemed like 50 verses of an invitation song. Yeah? And I understand sometimes that may be necessary. But God doesn't need our pressure to do His work. We can invite and we can encourage. But they were constraining, they were pressuring them. When the Holy Spirit of God takes a man or a woman of God and uses the Word of God, there will be the work of God for the glory of God. And these folks, their motive was for the praise of man. When your motive is for the praise of man, you're going to end up making somebody unhappy because you can't please everybody. Paul said, if our motive is for the glory of God, it is for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can glory in what? Verse 14, he says, we can glory in the cross. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now let me say this. 
in Paul's day, nobody gloried in the cross. In our day, we think about a cross and we think about a jeweler. In their day, in Paul's day, when they thought about a cross, they thought about a jailer. It was a big difference. They didn't glory in the cross. The cross to them meant suffering. It meant, it meant shame. It meant death. Jesus Christ, the carpenter, took two pieces of wood and He completely transformed them. He gave us a whole different meaning to the cross, didn't He? And we today can glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Up until Jesus Christ was crucified, the cross was never identified with glory, but it is today. We glory in the cross, the Bible says. And our concern must not be glory for ourselves. It's not glory for our program. It's glory for the Savior who went to the cross and who died for you and for me. If we don't have that kind of an attitude, we're out of touch with the Lord and out of touch with heaven. If you read Revelation chapter 5, you'll find that in heaven they glory in the cross. They sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Worthy. You may say, well, preacher, how can we glory in the cross? How do we do that? Well, there's a couple of things we can do. First of all, we must get to know the person of the cross. We can glory in the cross if we know who it was that was crucified on the cross. Amen? Our Lord Jesus Christ. If you know the person of the cross, you can glory in the cross. The more we get to know the Lord, and the more we get to understand what He did for us on the cross at Calvary, His suffering, and, and His shame, and His pain, and all that He went through for us, the more we can glory in it. Hebrews chapter is it 12 tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. What was the joy? How did He endure? It was the joy of knowing that those who put their faith and trust in that cross and in the shed blood on the cross would get to spend eternity with Him. It was the joy that He would have having all of us with Him for all of eternity. How many of you have family that's left home and they've moved away? They're not close to you. How many of you, when you have a family reunion, you can get everybody together? There's some joy there. Amen? Now, for some of you, you may say, Preacher, it's not joy when you know. But in most cases, there's joy. It's happiness. Even though it makes it crowded and all that, so there's joy. And I believe God wants heaven to be crowded. There's going to be joy in heaven. Because we get to be with the Lord and He gets to be with us. The person of the cross. And then secondly, if I'm going to go glory in the cross, I need to know the purpose of the cross. I need to know the purpose of the cross. He says there in verse number uh, verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice this, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. You see, this legalistic crowd that Paul was dealing with here, they were worldly. And Paul said, when you get to understand the person of the cross and the purpose of the cross, he said, all of a sudden, the world is not important. The world is crucified to me and I to the world. Let me ask you a question. What is the world interested in? The world is interested in number one, aren't they? Me. The world is interested in and concerned about success. Being successful. 
What's the world want? Glory. They want glory. Go back a couple of pages to chapter 5 of Galatians and look at verse 26. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 26. And he says, let us not be desirous of what? Vain glory. Provoking one another, envying one another. God says we're to be desirous of glory for God, not desirous of vain glory. What's vain glory? It's glory for myself. Don't be desirous of vainglory. What's vainglory? How do we get vainglory? Provoking one another, envying one another, devouring one another. Verse 15 of chapter 5 says, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. You see, that's what's going on in a lot of churches today. There's provoking and envying and devouring. That ought not to be among the people of God. That's indication of vainglory and not glory for God. Being concerned about who's the greatest this and who's the greatest that. Thank God all of us have the greatest Savior in all the world and we can give glory to Him and do what we do for His glory and not for our glory. So if you identify with this glory crowd, you'll end up provoking and envying and biting and devouring. And the result is that we are consumed by one another. Again, Chapter 5 and verse 15, he said, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. If our only concern is the glory of God, then we don't care whether our name is ever mentioned from the pulpit. We don't care if our name's ever in the bulletin. We may never get a trophy. We may never get a certificate. All we're concerned about is the glory of God. Jesus Christ died for me, and I want Him to get all of the glory. He's the one that is worthy of it. So what is the motive for your service and your ministry? Second question we should ask is, what is the measure of our ministry? What is the measure of our ministry? In verses 15 and 16, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor circumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. He talks about a new creation here, a new creature. He says, but a new creature. You know what that new creature is he's talking about there? It's the church. It's the body of believers. And notice what he says in verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule. The word rule there is the word canon. It's talking about the canon of the New Testament. It means a carpenter's rule or a surveyor's line. You see, the carpenter's rule measures how big something is, and the surveyor's line measures how straight something is. And Paul is saying, when you measure your ministry and your life, use the right kind of measurements. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, he warned us about using the wrong kind of measurements. In 2 Corinthians 10, let me read the, the verse for you there. In verse number 12, he talks about us measuring ourselves by ourselves, measuring ourselves with each other. He says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. In other words, we're not to be a part of the mutual admiration society. We're not comparing ourselves to each other. Paul was saying, I don't belong to this group of people. 
Their motive is the praise of men. They've got the wrong goal. Paul's motive was the glory of God. Their measure was measuring themselves by themselves. Not with the carpenter's rule, not with the surveyor's line, but with each other. Isn't that interesting? If you measure yourself by somebody else, if they're out of line, you're going to be out of line too, aren't you? If you're building a building and you have the wrong measurements, you're in trouble. You may start out pretty good, but after a while, the further up you get, the more problems you have as a result of it. Paul's motive was the glory of God. A lady one day at the switchboard of her company, she would get a call every day at a certain time of the day, and they would ask her, what time is it? She'd look out of her window at the clock on the town square, and she'd tell them what time it was. And one day she found out it was the guy that set the time on the town square clock that was calling her every day and asking her what time it was. That's what a lot of churches and groups are doing. They're measuring themselves by themselves. God says that's vain. Don't do it. So then the question is, what is the right measure? What is the right measure? He talks about it in verse 15. He talks about the new creation, the new creature. The new creature is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection. The old creature, the old creation, was plunged into sin by Adam's disobedience. The new creature is delivered from sin by one man's obedience, the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the old creation, the first Adam was a thief. And because of he, he was, he was thrown out of paradise. He took of the fruit that he was not to have. In the new creation, the last Adam turned to a thief on the cross and said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The new creation does not depend on anything in this world. Its connection is totally heavenly. We're to be connected with the Lord, connected with Jesus Christ. Our energy is to be totally spiritual and our wisdom is to be totally divine. The new creation, as explained in the New Testament, is God's standard for ministry. We don't measure ourselves by ourselves or with ourselves. We measure our life by the New Testament standard. In the Old Testament standard, they had walls that were built up. And the Jews were on one side and the Gentiles were over on the other side. But Jesus broke down the wall and he said in, 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 that the two are made one. In the Old Testament, it was don't do this and don't do that and don't touch this and don't touch that. But in the New Testament, God puts his Holy Spirit in us and the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse number 16 again of our text. He says, and as many as walk according to this rule. In other words, we have to have the right measure. Secondly, we must have the first requirement. And the first requirement is not working, it is walking. You see, these folks were looking at the working. Paul said you get the walking right and the working will be right. They were looking at how other people were walking, what kind of life they lived. They were looking about how to, how to do various things. And, and I believe if our walk is right, our life will be right. How do we live at our, in our home? If our walk is right, our life will be right in our home. How do we act at work? What kind of testimony do we have on the job? 
How do we treat our wife and our kids? You see, the new creation says there is a new walk. And this new walk causes me to live differently than I used to live before I got saved. My dad was an alcoholic, got saved when he was 25 years of age. Dad was a fighter. He'd get in a fight. Somebody said he'd fight at the drop of the hat, and he'd drop the hat if he needed to. But he was a fighter. But God saved him from that, and his life changed. He said it took him a whole month just to convince his mother that he had really gotten saved. You see, she didn't just take his word. She wanted to see it in his life. If our walk is right, our work will be right. And then look back at verse 16 again. As many as walk according to this rule, what's the next word? Peace. Peace be on them. Let me ask you a question. Do you have peace tonight? Paul said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you're saved, you have peace with God. Got peace with your family? Got peace with your mate? You have peace on the job? The new creation has peace. These Judaizers were creating war. When a person measures his life and ministry by the truth of the new creation, he doesn't have to go around declaring war. In fact, if you live right and walk right, you'll have some of the world to declare war on you. You won't have to declare war on them. We must measure our life by the truth of the Word of God, not by what is popular, not what it, by what is politi politically correct, but by what the Word of God says. There are churches all the time looking for pastors. I don't know how many churches. There's, a, there's different uh, websites that are just for pastors who are looking for churches or churches who are looking for pastors. And, and they'll send you a packet and, and they'll tell you all about their church. Back in, I think it was 1988, I had a church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. They sent me a packet, all kinds of stuff. They wanted me to come and candidate and, and so forth. And, and I knew that wasn't what God wanted me to do. But here's the thing that I want to say is they'll send out packets or they'll tell you all about their buildings, about their property, about their budgets, about how many members they have. I wish sometimes... They tell me how many people in your church spend an hour a day in prayer. Or maybe we have 75 men that go out every Tuesday and Saturday and witness and win people to Jesus Christ. See, that says more to me about how much money you have in the bank or how many buildings you have or what your budget is. The early church, you remember what Peter said, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I thee. You know what? You've got to have something to be able to give it, don't you? When your walk is right, it makes a difference in your work and in your life. They didn't have money to boast about. They didn't have much education to brag about. They were called ignorant and unlearned men. In other words, they were just common people. They didn't have any political clout. They were a bunch of jailbirds. Many of them had been in and out of prison. You know, I doubt if the Apostle Paul would be accepted by many churches or many mission boards today as a candidate. You've been in jail? You've been beaten? You got poor health? You see, Paul wasn't in the in crowd of their day. But he was in the in crowd, wasn't he? With the Lord. 
There's a third thing I want you to notice. We've seen what are the motives of our service. What is the measure of our service? Thirdly, what are the marks of our ministry or the marks of our service? What are the marks? Look at verse 17. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul, in a sense, was saying to these people here, he said, for henceforth, let no man trouble me. He was just simply saying to them, stop bothering me. Leave me alone. Enough with all of your bragging and all that's going on. He said, I bear in my body not the marks of the Jewish ritual of circumcision, but the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, true ministry for the glory of God has always been marked by suffering. The Lord said, they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Today, for some reason, we think that a person has succeeded if he doesn't have any suffering. If he doesn't have any struggles, that person's a success. We think he's really got it made. These Judaizers in Paul's day, they weren't suffering. They were doing their best to avoid the offense that came from the preaching of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have they been beaten? I doubt it. Had they been lied about? Had they been written up in a religious periodical that dragged their name through the mud? No, they were around bragging about their converts and what they had done. Paul said, I brag on the cross. I've shared in that. I've got my marks. They're the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word mark that Paul uses here is, it means brand. It's kind of like when they brand cows or brand animals. In Paul's day, they branded the slaves. They didn't carry an ID with them. They didn't have to have a national ID or something. They were branded. If they ran away, the soldier would catch them, and they would pull up their sleeve and look at the brand and see who they belonged to. By the way, a lot of people today are getting branded, aren't they? With all the tattoos and stuff that's going on in our world today. Be careful whose brand you wear. Amen? And I'm thankful. My, when I was in high school, my youth director had tattoos on him. He got him before he got saved, and praise God, God saved him. But most of the time when we had activities and things, he always wore a long sleeve shirt. I didn't understand then, but I knew later it was because he was covering up the tattoos that he had. And sometimes people come to our church, and we have folks in our church. Some of you here tonight may have some tattoos. Just be careful whose brand you wear. And if you got tattooed before you were saved, thank God he saved you and forgave you. And, and it's under the blood. Amen? But Paul said, I've got the marks of Jesus Christ, not the marks of the world. Not the marks of what's going on around me. He said, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And I have his brand to prove it. If you live in sin, you'll be branded. If you live for Jesus Christ, you'll be branded as far as the world's concerned. The criminals were branded. We used to do that a little bit in the early days of the United States. It used to be that when a woman committed adultery, she was branded. Now if a woman is pure, she's branded, isn't she? I used to look at some Christians and see the blemishes, but I discovered the closer I got... They weren't blemishes, they were scars. And there's a big difference, isn't there? 
Before you condemn that saint of God, ask yourself the question, what's marking me? Who's marking me? In verse 18, Paul closes the way he always closed, and that is with grace. He said, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Three things he says about grace. First of all, grace was the miracle of Paul's life. He was saved by grace. And if you're saved tonight, you're saved the same way. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Secondly, grace was the message of, on Paul's lips. He preached the gospel of the grace of God. Grace on his lips. You know, we should have the grace to preach the message of the gospel. We also ought to have grace in a lot of other ways on our lips. Amen. Our words ought to be seasoned with grace. And then thirdly, grace was the motivation behind Paul's labor. What I do, he said, I do by the grace of God. Not I, but the grace of God working in me and working through me. Do what, do, does your work, does your service, is it done by the grace of God? Many years ago when Mahatma Gandhi was the leader of the nation of Israel... A group of American missionaries waited to see him one day, and, and he said to them when they got in to see him, Mahatma Gandhi said to this group of Christians, he said, would you sing to me one of your Christian hymns that best describes what you're over here trying to do? They were missionaries. They were in India. He said, sing a song that best describes what you're trying to do. Very quickly they agreed on it, and they began to sing for Mahatma Gandhi. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. You see, if your motive is self-glory, go to the cross. If your measure is the approval of some person or some group, go to the cross. If your marks are the rewards of a religious mutual admiration society, Go to the cross, and when you go to the cross, all of the stuff turns into ashes, and you'll come away saying, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross. Let me ask you this question in closing tonight. Who gets the glory from your life and your service and your ministry? Let's pray.